When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Barbenheimer Blockbuster Bonanza Edition. It's Wednesday, July 26, 2023, on today's show. Barbie, it's Greta Gerwig's movie about the iconic toy doll from Mattel. It stars Margot Robbie as the stereotypical blonde bombshell and Ryan Gosling as her, I don't know, what's he even call him? Boyfriend Ken, I suppose. It's Just in, Ken. Just Ken. It's in theaters. And uh, as we speak, it's breaking box office records. And then Oppenheimer is a sprawling biopic from writer-director Christopher Nolan. It stars Killian Murphy as the so-called father of the atomic bomb, together with its unlikely sibling Barbie. It's helping to break box office records as well. And finally, the country singer Jason Aldean has a song called Try That in a Small Town. Safe to say it's a compilation of racist dog whistles. We discussed the unfolding controversy with Slate's own Chris Malamphy. Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, greetings. I'm. We're so excited, right? Portmanteau, we're day here at the <laughs> Gab Fest. <laughs> uh, it wasn't hard to pick the order to do these in. You got to start with Barbie. It's such a huge hit. Uh, so the new movie Barbie, it stars Margot Robbie as the quote unquote stereotypical Barbie. That means she's tall, lithe, buxom, very blonde, and her feet are molded permanently to slip into high heels. And as she herself says in the course of the movie, no genitals. Then, suddenly, out of nowhere, flickers of existential dread begin to cross her otherwise sunshine-drenched mind. She and her male counterpart, Ken, eventually cross over into the human world to discover why this is happening, only to discover something missing from Barbie land that we call the patriarchy. In addition to Robbie and Gosling, there's a huge ensemble cast. Kate McKinnon's wonderful. A bunch of people will discuss. Uh, The movie, of course, comes from the director, Greta Gerwig of Lady Bird and Little Women. It's co-written with her partner, Noah Baumbach. In the clip we're about to hear, three different Barbies are tending to Ken after he gets into a surfing accident. You'll hear Margot Robbie, Harry Neff, and Alexandra Shipp as the three Barbies, and of course, Ryan Gosling as Ken. Let's listen. Shredding waves is much more dangerous than people realize. You're very brave, Ken. Thank you, Barbie. Yeah. You know surfer's not even my job. I know. And it is not lifeguard, which is a common misconception. Very common. Yeah, because actually my job, it's just beach. Right. And what a good job you do at beach. You should heal up in no time. Actually, in the time that it took for me to say that sentence, you healed. Fantastic. Nice. <laughs> hey, Barbie. Yeah. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Goodbye. Dana, I'll start with you. I mean, where do you even begin with this movie? It's just smashing records right at the box office. Um, 
and seems to be by and large uh, critically beloved and embraced by audiences. What what do you make of this movie? I mean, I feel like before I even get into my response to the movie, Qua Movie, which I will certainly do, we just have to address, almost is almost a topic of its own, just Barbenheimer, the, the, the massive weekend that these two movies had and the way that the rising tide of each lifted the other's boat and just the thing that happened at the box office this weekend, which was just so stunning. And, you know, I think the fourth biggest box office weekend of all time. Uh, Greta Gerwig is the first female director to, you know, crush the box office to this extent. It's sort of by far the most successful movie commercially directed by a woman. Uh, I mean, just endless more records. I just read as we were starting to tape that Barbie just broke the Monday record for the studio Warner Brothers. And I love this detail, the movie that it beat, the previous Warner Brothers movie to have had the biggest Monday box office of all time was Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. So, you know, there's just this great reversal of the patriarchy happening in the reception that echoes what happens in the movie. And that has been so much fun and so energizing to watch, you know, people's enthusiasm about both films. Okay, but to get to Barbie itself, um, yeah, I am thoroughly in the Barbie pro category. Even though I can acknowledge some of the things that this movie maybe tries to do and doesn't do, it maybe tries to do a little bit too much, and uh, and we can get into that. But essentially, I really am hoping that people listening to this segment who are saying something like, this is just an attempt to tell sell toys, or, you know, I don't like Barbies, I didn't play with them when I was a kid, or, you know, I just, this is over-marketed, whatever. If you have some sort of Barbie cynicism, consider trying to get over it and just enjoy a really, really funny musical comedy with incredible songs, incredible design, and just a kind of gloriously original, weird sensibility. Like, this movie is total, total fun to watch. And so I really want people who have some sort of cynical uh, guardrail <laughs> against trying it out to go and check it out in the theater. Julia, what did, what did you make of the movie? Oh, man. This movie is so much fun. I saw it with my 10-year-old sons and my husband. Um, the 10-year-old sons were mildly dragged along. And actually, we were in the elevator at the Sherman Oaks Regal Galleria. And the some other people in the elevator were like, what are you guys going to see? Because it was full of peppy, zippy, everybody's at the movies energy. <laughs> my boys were like embarrassed to say they were going to see Barbie, which mm -hmm. was actually maybe my first um, experience of them performing some kind of gendered self-consciousness. So I was like, oh God, we're getting them to the Barbie movie just in time. <laughs> like, Ryan um, Gosling to the rescue. Exactly. They really liked it. And then afterwards, one of my sons was like, I feel like I would have liked that movie more if I was a woman in my 40s who played with Barbies. <laughs> I was like, correct. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that is most striking about it and most interesting about it is that it is so generous to women and to men. And in fact, takes the problem of masculinity as seriously as it does the problem of femininity. And it's just, it's a very human film. Like, and that's, I, I can't decide on some level whether to be, I think mostly I am moved and admiring that it does that. There's also something that feels a little bit off or something about the idea that Barbie finally gets a movie and it's really about the emotions of Ken, <laughs> but it's also about the emotions of Barbie. So uh, I don't know. I, I was impressed by the movie's wisdom as well as its wit. 
Wait, I just have one little pushback to to the idea that it's more about Ken than Barbie. I mean, I just feel like what is so, so smart about this screenplay and the way that it does have an important arc, emotional arc for Ryan Gosling's Ken, is that it is really about, and this speaks to your two boys in the elevator hesitating whether it was cool to see Barbie, Julia, it it, it is really about how patriarchy harms everyone, right? It harms men just as much as women. And I, I absolutely love the arc that his character gets. And to me, the high point of the movie, which makes me wish it was more of a musical, is the song Just Ken that's sort of, you know, his big existential crisis moment, which is staged like an old MGM musical. I'm just Ken, anywhere else I'd be Ken. Is it my destiny to live a life of longevity? I'm just Ken. And Ryan Gosling is utterly Oscar-worthy as Ken. So even though I agree that it is a movie for women, about women, by women, and that is what's so wonderful about its success, I also want people to know that it has a really significant male character who is also anguished about gender issues in a wonderful way. No, like if you... Greta Gerwig is too smart to not give a real arc to Ken. And and yes, you can't understand Barbie's oppression without also understanding Ken's oppression. Like, it's just funny that the movie made by the woman has to go immediately to uh, deep wisdom that considers all of humanity as opposed to just giving us the female version of Oppenheimer <laughs> where like there are two men in it and neither of them is real in any way. But That's we'll get true. to Oppenheimer. In we a still need that. We need more movies with flat male characters <laughs> to make up for <laughs> over we, a we century just, like, of the skipped, reverse. We we skipped the step where we made that movie. But bear in mind she did co-write the movie with um her bro I guess romantic partner, what do we call him now? Um Noah Baumbach. So I that's one of the reasons why I think it is balanced as it is gender-wise. Uh, Gosling is just so incredibly good in the movie. I didn't realize what a fabulous dancer he is. Um, there were definitely moments when I worried that he was almost stealing the movie, uh, which seemed just in a, totally inappropriate. But those were those were relatively minor. But I think Margot Robbie is also incredible. She's terrific. In I the want movie. to see it yeah, again just for her physicality because there's so much going on in this movie, which is arguably my review does say like it's arguably too busy, and I don't think the human parts of the movie yeah. work as well as the doll parts. But there's so much going on that I didn't pay attention to details like the way Margot Robbie holds herself in a doll-like way. I'm thinking about it's a scene incredible. where she's she's sitting with her feet, you know, her long legs straight out in front of her, and if you can imagine a Barbie sitting up that just topples over to the side mm-hmm. without any of the joints moving. You know, she just does that perfectly. And she, you know, it's important to mention, I think, that in a way, this is Margot Robbie's movie as much as Greta Gerwig's. Oh, I agree. She's a producer, yeah. not just in the sense that, you know, actors will often have a producer credit, but she had the idea of doing this. And uh, a wonderful story in The New Yorker by Alex Barish that we read for prep that's all about Mattel and the, you know, kind of toy movie synergy at Mattel, which is in some ways a somewhat, you know, um, menacing story about the future of toy movies. Anyway, it recounts Margot Robbie coming up with the idea and going around shopping it around to people. So it was her that went to Greta Gerwig and said, let's do this together. And I really feel like her creative force is quite evident in the movie. Yeah. Um, yes. For all the fun of the movie, it is it is existential dread that she begins to feel. And the movie's quite pointed about that. Um, she can't quite believe she's having these highly complicated, like deeply shadowed emotions in Barbie land. And that's what initially motivates her exit from it into the human world. And I thought that that was an interesting piece of deep wisdom about patriarchy on the part of the movie. 
you know, you have this doll that's always been both things. It's always been a would-be feminist icon. She's a career woman in most of her um, incarnations, the Barbie doll, but she's also this inhumanly proportioned, you know, ridiculous pseudo ideal of a certain kind of, I mean, to be honest, you know, super thin waist and bosomy. I mean, it's just a ridiculous, in some way, ridiculous thing for young girls to be playing with. And I think the movie is very wise in binding up its fuck you to the patriarchy with a kind of existential wisdom, which is she is escaping the status of being an object in a way that I thought played off of the Barbie form, like literally this plastic doll that's inhumanly proportioned in highly sexual ways. There's no other way. I mean, there's a reason why Barbie is a synonym for a certain kind of physical quote-unquote ideal. And I thought bringing those two together was going way beyond anything predictably knee-jerk. Right, Steve. I mean, in, in a way, Barbie's longing to become real comes from a, a long tradition in children's literature, yeah. right? The Velveteen Rabbit or Pinocchio of a toy that longs to become real. But because of the um, status of Barbie as this sexualized adult woman, that takes on a different twist in the movie that I won't give it away, but the final line is essentially a riff, a very funny riff on exactly that. Of course, the critique that would present itself is, well, this is, in fact, a, a Mattel collaboration. You know, so things can only get so dark and so existential, right? We can't ultimately burn down Barbie land at the end of this movie, right? So there is a way in which this movie has to remain both, um, you know, an upbeat child-friendly, which I think it completely is, you know, kids and adults could really enjoy this movie together. It has to be that kind of, you know, affirming movie about Barbie while Trojan horsing in both feminism and some of these bigger, more existential concerns. I think it does a really nice job of balancing those two things with a light touch, you know, but I definitely have seen some pushback against the movie with, you know, the idea that it's some sort of cynical capitalist collaboration. My response to that would essentially be, so then are we putting... Toy Story and every Disney movie that has tie-in merchandise and, you know, every movie ever that has been allied in some way with some sort of saleable object into that same bucket? And are we applying the same purity standard? I think there's kind of a sexism in, in suddenly mm -hmm. coming along and mm -hmm. saying, oh, well, now that a woman had big, big success, suddenly, you know, we're blaring the international on sound trucks in the street. Like, why weren't we doing that all along? You know, I think if it felt like the parts of the movie that articulate the pro story for Barbie felt false emotionally or felt not believed by the movie and its vision, it wouldn't work. But the argument that the film puts forth, I mean, this is what's just so absolutely clever about its structure, is that, in fact, Barbie was revolutionary. And the reason that Barbie was popular is that Barbie was the first doll that instead of giving girls a baby to play with, gave them a grown-up to imagine being. And they got to imagine themselves as president, and they got to imagine themselves as a deeply desirable sexual object, which, like, you know, complicated, but not also part of life. Like, <laughs> anyway, it, it I did not come away feeling like there were a bunch of meetings where Greta Gerwig had to add those elements to the film. It, it felt... It felt quite free, even though not everything it said about Barbie was negative. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Free is a good word for it. And I think audiences are responding to that with, you know, huge, huge enthusiasm, which makes me feel happy and free and sunshiny and upbeat about the future of movies. Yeah, I walked out feeling all those things, too. Okay, it's Barbie. If you haven't seen it, three huge thumbs up. Uh, check it out and let us know what you thought. Let's move on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what do you have? Stephen, we just have one item of business this week. That is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment, which this week will be a behind-the-scenes glimpse at the prep for Summer Strut. So if you're a true fanboy, fangirl out there who wants to know how the sausage gets made at our annual Summer Strut episode, which is coming up in August, uh, listen to this week's Slate Plus. We're going to talk about how we compile our own sub playlists. We will have Chris Melanfi, who is also a guest on our third segment this week and, of course, is always our co-host for the Summer Strut each year, talk about how he handles his research. I mean, put it this way, we have 48 hours of songs worth to listen to. So there has to be some workflow planning to get that segment together. We'll talk about that today in Slate Plus, which, if you're a member, you will hear after the show. And if you're not a member, you can become one by going to slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your Slate Plus membership, you will get ad-free podcasts, you'll get bonus content like the segment I just described, and best of all, you'll get unlimited access to everything on Slate. Podcasts, writing, whatever we've got, you'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member. Once again, help support Slate by signing up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, onward. Okay, well, writer-director Christopher Nolan took on an immense task when he decided to adapt American Prometheus, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the American physicist who oversaw the efforts to build the first atomic bomb. Nolan's movie, Oppenheimer, carries the audience through the three major periods of Oppenheimer's life, his education at the feet of the like really European grandmasters of physics, including, uh, to a degree, Einstein, but Niels Bohr, various others, uh, his heading of the Manhattan Project, and finally, his infamous persecution during the McCarthy period. The movie stars Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer. It also includes Robert Downey, Matt Damon, and uh, Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, his wife. In the clip we're about to hear, uh, General Leslie Groves, played by Damon, is asking Oppenheimer about the likelihood of a nuclear apocalypse. Let's listen. What did Fermi mean by uh, atmospheric ignition? Well, we had a moment where it looked like the chain reaction from an atomic device might never stop. Setting fire to the atmosphere. And what was Fermi still taking side bets on it? Call it gallows humor. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? 
Nothing in our research over three years supports that conclusion, except it's the most remote possibility. How remote? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. Julia, let me break with form. We're doing two movies. I'll start with you. What did you make of this uh, sprawling biopic? I had two reactions. One, I am not Christopher Nolan's biggest fan. I I liked his Dark Knight. I often leave his movies feeling unsettled and alienated in a way that perhaps speaks to his filmmaking power, but I, his work does not speak to me. Um, I liked this more than most of his other movies, I think because there are ways in which it is more conservative and a little bit buttoned up and a little bit almost like Oscar Beatty or something like like it, this movie is more conservative in its tone and structure than some of his other movies, which maybe just marks me as an unadventurous simp. I don't know. But I ha- did not have the feeling I sometimes have finishing Christopher Nolan movie of feeling like jangled and alienated and like unhappy. On the other hand, what a weird thing to say about his movie about the biggest horror of human invention. Like, shouldn't isn't the reason we should have been excited for Christopher Nolan to be making this movie that I should have left it feeling more jangled and alienated and horrified than um, than I ever had been by a film before. I guess I'm I'm puzzled, Julia, by what you mean by conservative in its structure. I guess you mean conventional, but I then it makes me feel like we saw two different movies because the structure of this film struck me as really, really unconventional and at times somewhat incomprehensible. And we haven't talked about the fact that it's in both color and black and white and the color and black and white strands mean two different things, which it Mm -hmm. took me a conversation after the movie to figure out that the color sections are basically Oppenheimer's point of view and memory and the black and white are a slightly more objective or, you know, more aligned with the point of view of the Robert Downey Jr. character, Louis Strauss, who becomes, you know, the the big um, rival or, uh, I guess, nemesis of Oppenheimer toward the end. So there's the the black and white color strands. There's also multiple time frames being jumped among Mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't think was handled with that much dexterity, honestly. I feel like the movie has a strange... After the test of the atom bomb, which you could say is the sort of action climax of the movie, there's a good 45 minutes to an hour of movie left, which is all the black and white Robert Downey Jr. timeline, which contains many great scenes and, you know, has some very powerful moments, but feels to me like there's just extra movie stuck on at the end of the climax of a movie. Anyway, there were a lot of things about this movie structurally that that struck me as both unconventional and not necessarily successful. But I have such ambivalent feelings about this movie. I feel like it it dragged me through, you know, stretches of kind of profound beauty and intensity, you know, followed by unintentional laughter at ridiculously bad dialogue. Yeah. Um, the women characters, both of them, all two of them in this huge, vast cast, <laughs> there's essentially two women who matter at all and say anything. And they're both Oppenheimer's romantic interests, his wife, played by Emily Blunt, and his, I guess you'd call her mistress, his ex-girlfriend, who he has a tryst with, played by Florence Pugh. Um both in in real life, fascinating women, if you read a bit about their background. Uh, uh, But both in the movie, I felt, you know, really reduced to reacting and, you know, sexually responding to Oppenheimer. It's the first time Nolan has really ever put sex scenes in his movies, and both the sex scenes, or post-sex scenes, I guess, I found 
unintentionally laughable. I mean, there were just there's so much bombast in Christopher Nolan always. And maybe, Julia, that's why you haven't responded to him in the past. Uh, it's hard for me to get emotionally involved with his movies because of how powerful they are trying to be as they slam things in your face. And I think that clip we heard was a good demonstration of my least favorite thing about this movie, which is also true of almost every Christopher Nolan movie, which is that the score, which is a very powerful, beautifully moody, eerie score by a Swedish composer named Ludwig Göransson, plays under every single second of dialogue. I swear to God that the only silence in this movie is the moment that the test bomb explodes when you have this, I think, really beautifully done, very powerful sequence of them, you know, setting up the, the test in the New Mexico desert. And at the moment of the explosion of the test bomb, there is there are a few merciful, strange to call anything at that moment merciful, but the silence is welcome and the silence is eloquent in that moment. But there's just something about uh, putting a hat on a hat, you know, or gilding the lily in the way that he's always just like thickly buttering, pounding music over every single second. It made me feel like I was in a trailer and it kept me emotionally distanced from the movie. But it's just it, it, you can see how ambivalent I am by the fact that I'm moving from, you know, saying these these. Uh, very praiseful things to just saying, like, get me out of here. Mm-hmm. I can't take it anymore. Right. I mean, what struck me is that this movie, as much as Barbie, comes with a built-in dilemma thanks to its quote-unquote IP, its source material. Barbie, you have to thread this needle between her being a career-oriented feminist icon and her being a sex object, and Gerwig does it beautifully. When you're talking about the creation of the atomic bomb, you're talking about the golden age of heroic physics, um, as it involved Einstein, Bohr, Heisenberg, Schrodinger. I mean, names people know to this day, the mapping of the atom and the attempt of the human imagination to come to grips with the quanta where the quantum realm where cause and effect newtonian cause and effect don't seem to hold then there's this attempt to build the ultimately destructive weapon in order to end the war and that was heartbreaking for most of these european physicists many of whom were jewish who were pacifists who are kantian or they, they were sort of steeped in a very european tradition of thought um and so it's funny. There's a weird combination of like dread and rah-rah behind the whole story um, and lionizing and elevation. At the same time, you have to pay heed to the agony of conscience that is this weapon and the era that it unleashed. Um, Nolan faces another problem, which is this is a huge story. This is one of my favorite nonfiction books ever written that it's based on American Prometheus. And I was shocked at how much of it he attempted to condense and push, you know, into a three-hour framework. It's impossible. I mean, I happen to know all of these characters and care about each one of them. I mean, I'm like, oh, that's Vannevar Bush. That's James Conant. That's Hans Bethe. That's Enrico Fermi. I mean, I have a weird preoccupation with this subject. So for me, it was like kind of fanfic heaven or something. Oh, wow. I didn't know you'd read the, the, the biography it's based on. And biographies or autobiographies of several of those physicists. I mean, because it, it was it was in some sense sort of the defining pivot of the 20th century and maybe modernity, right? Like, And what is it like for a single human being to bear the burden of perhaps introducing the technology on whatever timeline? Maybe it's five years, maybe it's a thousand years, by which the human species literally commits suicide, right, with the push of a button. Like, that was sort of on Oppenheimer's conscience. And so this both elevation of him, 
by like, for example, Time Magazine. He makes the cover of Time Magazine. Um, you know, as the father of the atomic bomb in the face of American science, of global science, combined with you are Prometheus. You really did introduce this force of ultimate destruction into the world. I mean, I admired the attempt to do it. And we should say, Dana, Killian Murphy is, I think, amazing as Oppenheimer. I mean, he really occupies the skin of this human being and all of that dread, all of that pride, competitive pride, uh, all of his weirdness. Oppenheimer yeah, was such a, a demanding role because he's so eccentric, right? He's such a peculiar person. Um, so how could you not have a movie whose virtues and defects were sort of of in this sort of Schrodinger-like way, you know, the cat's both alive and dead at the same time? Like the movie's both wonderful and, and an utter failure at the same time. It would almost have to be. Yeah. And if nothing else, Stephen, I mean, it's it's original. You know, that's something that yeah. in talking about the larger Barbenheimer phenomenon of this weekend and trying to kind of figure out what was it that set these two movies apart and made this happen, you know, besides the, the sort of funny collision of two such different movies on the same weekend. I mean, Sam Adams has a great piece in, in Slate about this, you know, that he wrote post The weekend and was essentially pointing to the fact that they're both movies of ideas in a way, mm-hmm. right? I mean, obviously on two very different registers, comic and tragic, but they're both movies that are by writer-director auteurs, right, who are grappling with big ideas. And the fact that audiences responded to both of those two things together yeah. just takes me back again to, you know, me waving pom-poms for the movies. Like, I am not the biggest fan of the movie Oppenheimer as a complete achievement. You know, it's, I'm not one of those people coming out saying, I'm devastated. Chris Nolan has made his masterpiece. But I feel awe and admiration toward it. Yeah. I'm, I'm extremely glad he made it. It also made me want to read the book American Prometheus that it's, it's based on. And, you know, just to think through this this turning point in American history. And that, to make mass audiences respond to those complex sets of feelings and thoughts is not nothing. I'm curious whether what you guys made of the critique of of whether the film does a good job portraying the horror of the bomb, though. Like, in my estimation, it does a really nice job. And and to me, the the cross-cutting and the jumping around and the sort of urgent pace of the first third of it actually does a pretty remarkable job of giving you a sense of his intellectual history and his intellectual context. I mean, I guess I haven't read enough biographies of Fermi to know how much I missed, but it it felt like the movie took care to situate him and and constructed that part of itself with with dramatic urgency and intellectual rigor and clarity. Um, but but there's also been this critique that this film, you know, it's it's almost entirely full of white men. There are very few women in it. It does not show anyone in Japan. It does not have scenes of Nagasaki. It does not, um, you know, there's been accusations that it's sort of portraying this horror visited upon a whole country through the eyes of a white guy in America. I think, I, I don't think it's a fair critique of the film to say that it's not trying to be about that horror. It definitely is. And it's making different choices about how that horror could and could not be known by a white man in the desert who who no longer has control of what he wrought. But did you think it was effective? Like, did you think, I mean, that was the other thing I was left with is like, I'm not sure I was made to think anything new or more deeply about nuclear power than I came into this movie thinking. Like, did, did this movie move you? Did it scare you? Did it force you to reckon with that history in a new way? 
Yeah, Julia, I mean, part of my weekend-long deep dive into both of these movies is that I did read a lot of response threads of people, you know, pushing back on the movie for for being about one man's interior experience almost as much it is as it is about the world history that he changed. And I think my response to that would be, I mean, first of all, it is a biography of a specific man, right? It can't be all things to all people. And I think that it would have weakened the moral force of the movie and made it more patronizing toward you know, other cultures, if there had been some sort of montage of stock footage at the end of the horrors of Hiroshima, that would not feel like it was part of the same movie. And it would not feel like it was giving any more scope to those victims. And it's hard to see how a movie this size about those specific events could have expanded to include the experience of hundreds of thousands of more people without being incredibly reductionist about it, right? So I don't really see a fix to that within what this movie is setting out to do, which is, you know, adapt the story of this one man's life. I also think there are moments in the movie, small but significant moments, including a moment when, you know, uh, a bunch of government officials and scientists meet together to decide, literally decide which cities to drop the bomb on. And I think possibly have a discussion, which I know they had in real life anyway, right, Steve, about bombing an uninhabited island first to demonstrate the power of the bomb, right, which they then decide not to do. And there's a moment that one of the officials says something like, oh, well, we can't bomb Kyoto because my wife and I spent our honeymoon there and it's this beautiful historic town in Japan, right? I mean, there certainly is is not any lionization of the figures who no. made those decisions or of the decision itself. But the purpose of the movie is not to be a document of peace activism, right? It's to document a moment in, in history when technology changed in a way that made war a completely different and much more horrifying thing. And I think, Julia, I did feel the horror of that at moments, not maybe uh, at the moment of coming out of the movie because of that long tale I mentioned where we're just thinking about the Robert Downey Jr. character, who, by the way, Robert Downey Jr. crushes his performance in that yeah, role. That He's absolutely amazing. wonderful. Yeah. Um, but I did feel that by moments. I, I would also say that you know, there's an entire tradition of extraordinary Japanese and other non-American movies about those events that people should turn to if they want to see extraordinary cinematic depictions of the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, including Hiroshima Mon Amour, Black Rain, Grave of the Fireflies. I mean, any almost any Japanese movie about the aftermath of World War II is going to be the place to go and have mm -hmm. that experience. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. All right. Well, the movie's Oppenheimer. It's out in theaters. Uh, we have interestingly ambivalent feelings about it. What are yours? Shoot us an email. All right. Let's move on. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. 
on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Okay, well, the country artist Jason Aldean is coming out with his 11th album. He's released, if you haven't heard, the lead single from that record. It's called Try That in a Small Town. And it's basically a series of MAGA-adjacent, MAGA-inspired dog whistles, which have been called, and I think quite rightly, racist. Um, It's filled with uh, all kinds of mentions of carjacking, robberies, flag burning, and the tagline is, if you're looking for a fight, try that in a small town. It just has an aura of vigilante violence. It was only heightened when the video for the song was released. Uh, The opening shot of the video is a Tennessee courthouse. Turns out it was the site of an infamous lynching. All right, we're joined by Chris Melanthi, host of the Hit Parade podcast, and of course, Slate uh, writer and chartologist. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steve. We take care of our own, don't we? <laughs> we have a lot uh, to cover here. The the song, the video, the history that arises out of Aldine himself. Before we get to that, why don't we just, loathsome as it is, uh, I think we do have to listen to some of that uh, song. So let's, uh, let's cue that up. Sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk. Carjacking old lady at a red light. Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face. Stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. Well, try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Around here we take care of our own. You cross that line, it won't take long for you to find out. I recommend you don't try that in a small town. Ugh, somehow that I recommend you don't is like, yeah, there's something so unctuous and like faux courtly about this deeply sinister threatening song i have likened that line to the old mobster cliche that's a nice blah you've got there be ashamed something happened to it Mm -hmm. um yeah my first reaction is are we sure this is an andy samberg it just feels like an s especially with the video it's so over the top and my second reaction was you're telling me it took four or five people to write this awful song that's incredible to me. Chris, for those who don't know, which I'm going to guess is the vast majority of our audience, tell us who Jason Aldean is. He's a veteran, right? This is not a breakthrough for him. Not at all. Uh, Jason Aldean has been a country star for well over a decade uh, since I would say the mid-aughts. Funnily enough, not to use this as an excuse to promote my forthcoming book, but I had to write about Jason Aldean in my forthcoming book about the Lil Nas X song, Old Town Road, 
because Jason Aldean, one of his biggest hits way back in 2010, is a cover of a song called uh, Dirt Road Anthem, in which Jason Aldean raps. Um, and it's, in a weird way, a kind of predecessor to Old Town Road in that it's, you know, a big hit by a country star rapping. Back in the day, Potts Farm was a place to go. Load the truck up, hit the dirt road. Jump the barbed wire, spread the word. Light the bonfire and call the girls. King and the can and the Marlboro man. Jack and Jim were a few good men. We learned how to kiss and cuss and fight too. Better watch out for the boys in blue and all this. But he's had all sorts of hits, uh, multiple number one hits on the country charts. Um, he's not unlike Morgan Wallen, whom we talked about a couple months ago or Luke Combs, who is currently enjoying a big, big hit with a cover of Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. He's not a crossover star. He pretty much lives in the world of country music. And this song is the ultimate dog whistle to end all dog whistles. I mean, and it's not even a dog whistle. It's kind of blunt. Um, you know, some of the choice lyrics, you know, got a gun that my granddad gave me. They say one day they're going to round up. That shit might fly in the city. Good luck. Yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about this this week, Chris. And the more, the the deeper down I drill into the story around this song, not just the reprehensible <laughs> lyrics themselves and the video being filmed in front of a famous lynching site, et cetera, et cetera, but the way that Aldine's response to the backlash has been to obfuscate the song's meaning in a very canny way. I mean, this is clearly uh, the language that he's chosen to defend himself in the song is just so gaslighting. It's so carefully obfuscating the, the violence that is clearly at the heart of the, the song's message or the threat of violence. And I just wanted to read a quote from something that Aldine himself said on stage in Cincinnati this past weekend, uh, right before performing the song, basically sort of whipping up the crowd, you know, to anticipate his current big hit. He says, I got to tell you guys, man, it's been a long ass week. It's been a long week and I've seen a lot of stuff. I've seen a lot of stuff suggesting I'm this, suggesting I'm that. What I am is a proud American. I'm proud to be from here. I love our country. I want to see it restored to what it once was before all this bullshit started happening to us. I love our country. I love my family. And I will do anything to protect that. I'll tell you that right now. So everything he says on the surface, right, could be sort mm -hmm. of right. Norman Rockwell, right? I believe in the values of our country and my family. But the obfuscation of all this bullshit started happening to us, right? You kind of want to stop right there, have a journalist, you know, have Chris Malanfi come out there on stage with a microphone and say, Mr. Aldine, could we get into what you mean about all this bullshit that's been happening to us that you want to stand <laughs> up against, yeah. right? And the video really does the exact same work. I mean, many people have pointed out how the footage from the video, which is sort of a vague street violence that isn't really placed anywhere, comes from all over the place and all over the time. Some of it's from Europe, some of it's from 2010, right? I mean, it is from basically any sort of vision of urban disorder that he wants is sort of thrown up on the screen as this idea of what is vaguely happening in a small town. And it's just the most dangerous straw man argument you could imagine, because mm -hmm. it's essentially doing what Fox News and places like that do, like show us some you know, disquieting street violence and imply that that's about to happen to grandma if you don't get your gun. Well, and it's also missing footage of one recent quite <laughs> conspicuous incident of people being violent uh, in a rejection of classic American values like voting for who becomes president, uh, which is one sure. of the things about the video that belies its supposed, oh, I'm just nostalgic neutrality. Yeah, and in terms of the 
statements Aldine has made. He made a more formal statement on Twitter, or I guess X, as I'm now obligated to call it, uh, about no, a week not. ago. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank In you. fact, Thank you, you are forbidden. You are forbidden to call it that. Fine. So when when we were still calling it Twitter, Jason Aldine said, "Quote: In the past 24 hours, I have been accused of releasing a pro lynching song, a song that has been out since May, and was subject to the comparison that I direct quote was not too pleased with the nationwide BLM protests. These references are not only meritless but dangerous." There is not a single lyric in the song that references race or points to it, and there isn't a single video clip that isn't real news footage. And while I can try and respect others to have their own interpretation of a song with music, this one goes too far, unquote. I mean, I love your word, Dana, gaslighting, because he seems to be hanging on the very tissue-thin excuse that because he doesn't actually say anything about race, right? and he, he's using actual news footage, somehow that inoculates him from racism, let alone the fact that he's not addressing the courthouse upon which he shot his video. But, Mm -hmm. you know, let's let's even take that out of it and just treat the song as a primary text. It is still fundamentally about, you know, telling those uppity protesters what's what at the point of a gun. You know, to to move the conversation away from the the race issue for a moment, I just feel like gun laws and gun control is such a huge part of this conversation, too, because, I mean, my jaw just hit the floor when I read in researching this segment that Jason Aldean was the artist playing in 2017 at that Las Vegas music festival that was the biggest mass shooting, I believe, in U.S. history. So it was during his set that 60 people were killed and 413 people were wounded by a mass shooter. Something that in the aftermath, I think he responded to with some sympathy toward the idea of safer gun laws, but that clearly there's a lot of backsliding going on in this song that is essentially a anthem in defense of guns. Yeah, a couple things um, to say. One is that it seems to me this song comes out of two converging traditions. Tradition, let's say, Tradition 1A is, you know, the right in America in the 60s seized on the unrest and eventually chaos at Berkeley, Michigan, Columbia, predominantly, um, you know, the work of white student protesters, because that allowed them to say the words law and order over and over and over again. Reagan did it in 66 on his way to becoming governor of California and Nixon on the way to becoming president in 68. What their audience knew is that they were winking and saying, you know, I'm really talking about this. It's both Watts and Berkeley, right? It's totally colorblind. It's just disorder. But it allowed, you know, a mainstream politician to be racist and alibi it. And this is exactly what this does. There are white protesters throughout the video. It's, you know, you the flag burner might just as well be a, you know, a Swarthmore student as uh, anybody else. Um, so it's just really carefully alibied. The second tradition it comes out of is, um, you know, the Oki from Muskogee, uh, right. a, you know, tradition of Merle Haggard of country music sort of asserting itself as anti-cosmopolitan uh, and specifically in some ways Southern. Um, but I just want to say one thing very quickly. I went to the internet in search of violent crime rates by state. Okay. And of the 16 highest crime rate states, 13 are predominantly rural red states. You know, the the idea that social disorder, expanding on Julia's point, the idea that social disorder is principally a function of quote unquote urban America is A, completely mythic. That's not true. And secondly, clearly a racist dog whistle. 
Yeah, I mean, there is a long tradition, really dating to the beginning of what we know as country music in the 1920s, of prizing the small town over the big city. And yeah. before I go further, I should highly recommend to folks a fantastic article by Amanda Marie Martinez that ran in NPR a few days ago titled Jason Aldean's Small Town is Part of a Long Legacy with a Very Dark Side, mm. in which she basically runs down the long history of you know, small town prizing. The small town is where the good people are. The small town is where the rural idyllic life is versus the big bad city. And to be fair, that trope has appeared in rock songs as well. It's not as if it's exclusive to country music, but no genre has played that trope harder than country music. And yes, you mentioned Oki from Muskogee, the legendary song. I'll say legendary because, you know, I think it kind of is by Merle Haggard, a number one country hit in 1969. For those who care, it did cross pop, but it only peaked at number 41 on the pop chart. The fact that a Merle Haggard song did that well is remarkable. It shows what a a political football and a, an object of debate that song was in 1969. And, and maybe we should hear a few lyrics from that, let's say classic, Okie from Muskogee. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take no trips on LSD. We don't burn no draft cards down on Main Street. We like living right, being free. Chris, one thing I'm curious if you could speak to, given that lineage, is like, to what degree is a segment like this part of the marketing plan for this mm -hmm. song? Like, does this song only function with a backlash from, you know, uh, coastal elites or whatever we are on the show? The, the type of person who doesn't understand what it's like to be from a small town or whatever it is. You know, I think we've seen this a couple times recently with sort of a public internet outcry over the ethics of country lyrics and then the country stars only getting more and more successful. Like how much of that reaction is baked in to the plan for a song like this? And, and what kind of, um, you know, impact is this going to have on Aldine, the song, his career, its chart performance, all the rest? Yeah, that question is, I will say, cynical and spot on. Um, because truthfully, as Aldine himself points out in his statement, the song's been out since May, and the spark was lit a couple weeks ago when the video dropped and people sort of looked more closely at the lyrics and pointed out the fact that, you know, the video takes place at a lynch a former lynching site. Um, and... Without question, the controversy is what has made this song a massive hit. It wasn't even that big of a country radio hit. It is now a bigger country radio hit. Even country radio, you would think they would be lighting the fire. They're playing this, but it's only number 25 on country airplay this week because country radio wants some controversy, but modest controversy. They, they don't want to ignite any more than they have to. Um, it's number one on the overall country chart because of all the digital data that's poured into it. But the hardcore right audience will fuel, you know, activity, whether it's at the box offices we're seeing right now or at, you know, digital services, they will fuel something up the charts. Uh, but, you know, there's a limit and a hard ceiling to some of this consumption. But as we have seen this year with, you know, country crossing over on the pop charts, now that we have just very finely granular digital data, we no longer can regard a song like 
try that in a small town as a sidebar to the pop conversation because you know this is not Oki from Muskogee peaking at number 41 in 1969 mm-hmm. this is a Jason Aldean song peaking at number 2 in 2023 and it's part of the conversation whether you like it or not all right well chris as always it's a pleasure to have you come on and give us the deep history and context uh even for something as lamentable as this uh come back soon okay i sure will all right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? All right, I'll make it short because we've yammered for so long. But because my whole theme this week is yay movies and theaters, go, 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 I'm going to endorse another boat whose rising tide I hope is lifted by the Barbenheimer moment that's in theaters right now. It's called Theater Camp, and it's absolutely hmm. delightful. I, I can't wait to talk about it maybe with you guys on the show, off the show. I just encourage everyone to go take your kid if they're an older kid. I think any kid over about 10 would love this. If they're a theater kid like my kid, they would flip for it. And I will tell you nothing more about it except that it is Ben Platt and Molly Gordon as two theater camp counselors and with a bunch of incredible middle schoolers, you know, learning to sing, dance and put on a show. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'm dying to see it. Um, Julia, what do you have? Okay. This may be like when I endorsed Chinatown, I have not been a big Otolenghi cooker in my life. Like I know everybody went through the Otolenghi phase, but I just have never made a ton of his recipes. But I finally tried one that recently appeared in the New York Times, zucchini pasta with crispy capers and pistachios. This is the exact kind of recipe I don't recommend. It requires you to individually fry basil leaves, which is very laborious, although it makes them look like this kind of crispy glassine, stained glass quality. Um, It essentially asks you to cook pasta and zucchini as though you are making risotto, like you kind of reduce and constantly stir the pasta in broth. It's vegan. It is a laborious showstopper, but worth it. So if any of that sounds good to you, try it. And if the notion of deep frying a basil leaf seems ridiculous, uh, I see you and feel free to skip. But zucchini pasta with crispy capers and pistachios by Yotamoto Lenghi. Julia, I endorse you making that for me next time I come to visit you and me not having to make it, but getting to eat it. I will do that. Our zucchinis are coming in here in uh, Los Angeles. So I will make it with homegrown zooks if you require. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think I endorsed the book uh, Diary of a Foreigner in Paris by Curzio Malaparte. We got an email from the translator. It's originally written in Italian, um, saying, lovely endorsement. Thank you so much. I'm glad you recognized the book. But, you know, that passage that you read actually is a translation. Like, my labor and my artistry went into rendering that in English. Uh, Stephen Twilley, the translator, is absolutely right. It's beautifully written only because I have it in his beautifully rendered English. So I wanted to shout him out very quickly. And then, um, of course, Tony Bennett has died, the great, great American singer. I mean... As between Sinatra and Bennett, to me, there's just no competition. I think Bennett is the is just the great golden voice of the uh, one of them of the American Songbook. And um, if you're looking for something of his to listen to, I mean, I love so I love all of his collaborations with the pianist Bill Evans, but also his live at Carnegie Hall, which I hadn't discovered uh, until recently. But I'm really digging it. You're up in an aeroplane, or you're dining at Sardi's, or else you're alone, and then you suddenly think. You suddenly hear a bell right away, you can tell. This could be the start of something. This could be the heart of something. This could be the start of something. Something.
Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. It was a pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. 